Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Isolation is not good for our mental health. That's certainly been the ish message during this pandemic. But imagine what it would be like if you were kept isolated in a small space as punishment for long periods of time. Today, where we live, we learn about solitary confinement. It's a practice still used in U.S. prisons, including here in Connecticut. Coming up, we hear from State Senator Gary Winfield, who supports a proposal to ban solitary confinement in our state. First, my guest today spent more than 40 years in solitary confinement. More than 40 years. Albert Wood Fox wrote about what happened to him at the Louisiana State Penitentiary in his book, Solitary. He writes, living in concrete, you get used to the noise. Sound bounces off the floors and walls and echoes. When someone on the tier cracked, you'd hear him cry or scream. Some guys would moan for hours or days. Remarkably, this experience did not break Wood Fox, who would write this book after being released from prison in 2016. He is this year's recipient of the 2020 Stowe Prize, a literary prize that recognizes books that illuminate a critical social justice issue in our society. Albert Wood Fox joins us by phone from Louisiana. Albert, welcome to our show. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, this note, if you have children nearby, you may want to listen to this conversation another time. Uh, so, Albert, for people who may not have uh, read your book, Solitary, you were first incarcerated at the L- Louisiana State Penitentiary as a teenager, and, and then in your 20s you were sent back for a, a 50-year stretch after being sentenced uh, for robbery. Tell us about Louisiana State Penitentiary. This is one of the largest maximum security prisons in the country. Yes, you know, uh, Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola was uh, once a uh, plantation. Uh, it's about 18,000 acres surrounded uh, on three sides by the uh, Mississippi River. And uh, uh, during the time uh, in the 70s, uh, it had been designated as one of the bloodiest uh, prisons in America. Mm. Uh, it was, you know, it was a horrible experience. Uh, and I still, you know, suffer from the side effects of, uh, you know, being held in solitary uh, for so long. You know, I still have claustrophobic attacks, and there are occasions when I may wake up and I'm disorientated for a brief moment. Mm. I'm not aware of where I'm at, you know. You mentioned that this prison was was known as Angola. Again, it was a, a former uh, slavery plantation. But why was it called Angola, Albert? Well, uh, I, you know, according to uh, material I read, uh, the overwhelming majority of the uh, uh, slaves uh, came from uh, the African country that's called Angola, mm. and uh, and in a macabre way, it was supposed to sell the best slaves uh, the, you know, from that area. You know, mm. 
You said that uh, when you were there, it was known for its brutal conditions. You talk about that brutality in the book, Solitary. You talk about how you had to show that you were not weak, so not to be raped, and you would go on to fight other inmates to protect others. Tell us about why you did that. Uh, you know, uh, level of conscious, uh, high moral standards, value system, principles uh, that, you know, had been inspired uh, originally by my mother. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually I joined the Black Panther Party and, you know, a certain type of mindset, a certain type of philosophical thing was required by party members. Uh, so, you know, reading this material, you know, just what we call a, a reading of one's level of consciousness. And uh, I think, you know, the foundation laid originally by my mom uh, allowed me to build and, you know, to eventually define who who I was, what kind of human being I, I wanted to be, and that I had a sense of self worth and that I could contribute to the development of humanity. Mm. I want to learn more about uh, when you first discovered uh, the Black Panther Party, but tell me about your mother, Ruby Edwards Mabel. My mom was an original, as they say, you know. Uh, she was functionally literate. She could only read or write her name, you know. Uh, like uh, a lot of African Americans during hard times, you know, that were product of uh, of American society, the racism, the institutional racism, systemic application of racism, and, and you know, uh, the educational system was not concerned with truly educating African-American people at that time. And, and, and so she was uh, a, a predictable result of that kind of treatment, you know. Mm. Tell me more about your upbringing, Albert. Uh, your mother worked hard to support you and your siblings, uh, but you talk about um, how you were often uh, in trouble with the law, and yet you had no uh, ill feelings uh, toward your family uh, when uh, they were trying to, to support you because you were on your own in the sense of you were doing what you wanted to do and um, you didn't learn about uh, the consequences until later. Yeah, well, you know, at that at that time, uh, you know, uh, like most African Americans, I was a product of the environment that I was forced to live in, the environment uh, uh, that I was raised in. You know, I had no identity. I had no role models. Uh, my role models were people in the neighborhood who, you know, a lot of them had been to prison. Uh, a lot of them uh, couldn't find jobs and stuff, so uh, they became petty criminals. They, you know, it's a, it's a survival thing, you know. Uh, if you can't survive the right way, you will survive in any way that's made available to you. And so, you know, uh, yeah, I was actually, you know, after I joined the party, and, you know, uh, began to read uh, and discovered the history of African Americans and African people uh, in, in in the world, in society, the contributions uh, uh, that were made and still being made by African people. Mm. 
Uh, in the book Solitaire, again, I'm talking with Albert Wood Fox here on Where We Live. You talk about discovering the Black Panther Party while you were incarcerated. If you hadn't discovered the Panther philosophy and that changed your outlook, uh, where do you think you would have uh, ended up, Albert? Oh, I probably would still be in prison, you know. I mean, uh, you know, as far as discovering the Panthers, I mean, everybody, you know, the Panthers kind of like exploded uh, in the 60s uh, uh, upon American society, the Panther uh, originated in Oakland, California. Uh, the party, uh, you know, had uh, uh, good things that, African Americans were not known to do, were not allowed to do, and so you know uh, that seemed to resonate with the African American community, and 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 a lot of uh, uh, white Americans as well. You know, and this wasn't just about, and that uh, may have been the downfall. You know, mm-hmm. because the Panthers grew at such a tremendous rate, uh, and then with the concentrated effort, uh, efforts of uh, uh, Diego Hoover and the, and the FBI, you know, eventually was uh, infiltrated and and, and 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 disrupted from within, you know. Mm. You're talking about COINTELPRO. Yes, COINTELPRO. Yeah. Mm. If you hadn't discovered again the the Black Panther Party, this wasn't just about uh, your transformation. Uh, you worked. Uh, to encourage uh, other uh, inmates at the time that they had rights, that they should be treated a certain way, and you would protest uh, when you weren't treated well. How did that have an impact on you, Albert, Uh, again, uh, collectively uh, helping others around you while you were still incarcerated? Well, it impacted me in the sense that it gave me a sense of... uh, uh, my own uh, power, my own ability as a human being to uh, to make change, to cause things to change. Uh, but at the same time, it was very demanding because in order to be able to lead other men, in order to be able to you know gain the respect of other men, especially in, in a hostile environment like prison, you have to be able to uh, you know what you, know what you're talking about. You have to be able to explain what it is you're trying to accomplish and why it needs to be accomplished. So it was, it was demanding, uh, but it also uh, it caused me to do the necessary uh, uh, re-education, re-education of myself and it, uh, in order to ask men that live a certain way. You had to set an example. But you also had to try to develop principles and values in the code of conduct uh, that would make you stand out in contrast to what was considered normal in in, in a prison environment, prison culture. Yet that uh, affiliation with the Black Panther Party uh, was part of the reason while you were at Angola, you write in your book Solitary, a white prison guard was murdered. You and several other Panthers were accused of this murder and convicted, despite that there was no physical evidence that linked you to this crime. Do you believe that? Well, Mm. I'm sorry, you know, they have a bad habit of cutting people off. Uh, there is physical evidence. There's a there's an identifiable bloody fingerprint mm. uh, that was uh, Mr. Miller's blood that was found on the door of the dormitory, 
uh, and they uh, only matched it against myself and then uh, Hyman Wallace and uh, two other uh, guys who were charged. Um, and it didn't match. It didn't match any of the officers working the crime scene. Uh, and that was it. They stopped. They stopped, you know, in spite of having the fingerprints of every prisoner in there and goal at the time on file. Uh, they went no farther, you know. Mm. Uh, and even to this day, even after, you know, uh, my release and everything, uh, after 47 years, 44 years of fighting in the courts to, take, to get uh, justice, uh, what seems to be justice, uh, 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 they're still not concerned with finding out uh, who that bloody fingerprint belongs to. Again, I'm speaking with Albert Wood Fox, who wrote Solitary, a memoir uh, about his time at Louisiana State Penitentiary known as Angola. He spent more than four decades in solitary confinement because uh, they said that you committed this murder, Albert, when you did not. So what was that like to spend 23 hours a day in a six-by-nine-foot cell? Well, first of all, the measurements of the cell, six you know, six feet wide, nine feet long is not accurate as far as the uh, uh, available space, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because they have some bunks attached to the wall and uh, a metal uh, toilet and baseball combination and a, a table attached to the, to the opposite wall across from the bunk. You have a very narrow and limited space availability. You know, the nine by six is the measurements of the cell as a whole, but it, uh, it, it, the, the space available to you is much smaller. And you know, uh, it was, you know, it's kind of hard to put uh, in the words. It's a horrible, horrible, horrible feeling. And you know, uh, it's like you're fighting the breed. Uh, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. You know, you never, the pressure is never, you, you, there's no outlet for this pressure, you know, uh, uh, because of the, over the decades of uh, protests and hunger strikes and whatever, we were able to change some conditions. But the one thing you can never change is the pressure of being confined to that small area. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, you know, uh, Robert and I, Robert King Wilson and, uh, and Harmon, before we lost him, you know, we used to always uh, talk about, you know, uh, how we, you know, I guess you could say the worst case uh, uh, example because, you know, we were able to, to survive this and not only survive it, but to progress as human beings. And, you know, but, you know, and there had to be a reason in, 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 in the mystery of reasons why we survived, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons that inspired me to write this book. You know, I just felt as though uh, the American people and the people of the world had to know what was going on in, in prison system. Uh, you know, solitary confinement is a brutal condition. It's, it's so purpose is to destroy human beings. Uh, it has no penological freedom. It has no individual uh, 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 purpose, you know. And so, you know, uh, I watched 
over four decades, you know, uh, actually the actual time in time was 44 years and 10 months, almost 45 years of South Texas farming. I watched men uh, go insane. I watched men kill themselves. I watched men cut themselves and injure themselves just to, to get out the cell or go to the hospital or something. Uh, you know, and, and, and so, you know, that is a very, very horrible, horrible experience, uh, you know, and for someone to be, you know, to confined to a nine by six cell, you have no escape from this. And so my, my, you know, uh, met the, I became an avaricious reader. And as a result of that, you know, uh, uh, I was able, always in a position to help other men and to try to set an example to other men uh, as to how one conducts himself, you know. But I think the greatest thing was to give them a sense of value that they had a purpose, even though they were in prison, you know. And they had they had an opportunity, you know, to change themselves, to develop a, a moral principles and values. And and that would help define who they who they are who they you know can, could be if they wanted it. Mm. You said that you loved reading while you were in prison, and you helped educate others. You write about that uh, in chapter twenty five of your book Solitary, and you call it your greatest achievement. Can you tell us uh, what you mean? Uh, this uh, this is another uh, inmate at the time. His name was Charles. Yeah. Well, you know, growing up, as I said earlier, you know, my mom was functionally literate. She could only read or write our name. And so I recognized from my experience with her, uh, you know, the signs of one uh, who can't read or write. And, you know, Charles and I, you know, he had a, he's a nice guy, and he lived in cell next to me. And so, I, you know, we used to talk a lot, but I was able to, that detect, you know, uh, that he couldn't read or write. And so one day I approached him about it, and uh, he said, nah, man, you know, I just don't know. I never, they never taught me how to read or write in school or anything, you know. And so I said, well, I could teach you, you know. And so, uh, but you have to really want it. You have to want it. It's, it's more better than anything that's going on in your life right now, you know. I said, if you're willing to do that, you know, uh, I can teach you to read or write. And so what I did was I used to use a dictionary, you know, and every dictionary at the bottom, there is a, uh, what we call, what you call a, a speech voice, you know, a teacher how to shape your, your, your vowels and stuff and how to shape words and stuff. So we would use that, you know, to teach him. And I think in about six months, a time, mostly because he he really wanted to. He was reading at a high school uh, mm. level, you know. Mm. And one day, you know, he uh, we were sitting now talking, and he gave me this strange look, you know. And uh, and I'm like, what's going on, you know? And he said, man, you know, you you open the world of me, you know. Mm. And uh, that really, I think, for the first time, that I really was impacted by some of the work I was doing. And, and it was a tremendous feeling, you know, and uh, uh, one of my proudest moments, you know, and that's mm-hmm. why I say I think about of all the things I accomplished in, in prison, in solitary, uh, 
guy has to be the greatest, you know. Mm. Albert, our listeners might be wondering how you were able to do this, how you were able to take a leadership role as a teacher for other inmates while you were in solitary confinement. How did that work exactly? Well, you know, most people see images, uh, the images of solitary confinement is from the old movies and stuff, the concrete cell, and they do have those kind of systems. But unfortunately, Angola, because of the age of it, and the building uh, CCR was housed in, CCR and Jetrule was housed in the same building. Uh, anyone who has seen a picture of Angola, there's this big white building at the at the front of the gate of the prison. And but the cells had a bar system, uh, not a concrete wall, so it was easy to communicate with people on either side of you, uh, or people down the hall, you know, which is why you have. A lot of noise going on during the day between the doors opening and the closing uh, for, for a one-hour shower uh, period and exercise. Uh, you know, you have guys screaming and hollering back and forth to one another trying to, you know, uh, fight the pressure of being confined to this small cell. And so that made it easier. Uh, you know, to communicate with people, especially if you have someone in the cell next to you. Mm. And uh, and Charles was in the cell next next to me. So we used to stand at the bars and talk with one another. And we would, uh, I would hold a dictionary or a book or whatever uh, out the cell where both of us could look at it. And, and you know, and we just, we just used that technique uh uh, and as I said, after about six months, uh, you know, uh, he was reading at a, a high school level. You, know. mm. you mentioned CCR, that's Closed Cell Restricted Cell Block at Angola. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, Albert Wood Fox, recipient of the 2020 Stowe Prize from the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center in Hartford. Uh, Wood Fox spent uh, nearly 45 years in solitary confinement at the Louisiana State Penitentiary. He wrote about that experience in the memoir, Solitary, Unbroken by Four Decades in Solitary Confinement, My Story of Transformation and Hope. After the break, we'll continue talking with him and we'll hear from the executive director of the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center, which awarded Wood Fox the 2020 Stowe Prize. You can also join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is Albert Wood Fox. He's a recipient of the 2020 Stowe Prize from the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center in Hartford for his book, Solitary. Wood Fox spent nearly 45 years in solitary confinement at the Louisiana State Penitentiary, and he wrote about that in the memoir, Solitary. Uh, Albert, while you were in prison, you wrote the warden to get permission to attend your mother's funeral. And he refused. How did that affect you? It was devastating, you know. In African American households, uh, it uh, it has always been a tradition, you know, to say the final goodbye. You know, uh, uh, it, it, 
is one of the most important elements of African American family, you know. And uh, to not be able to say that final goodbye, you know, it was a burden that I had to live with, not only with my mom, but my sister as well, uh, for 20-something years, you know. And, uh, you know, I made a solemn vow and, and, uh, uh, that I fulfilled that if I, not if, but rather when I was released from prison, that I would, you know, go directly to the grave and uh, and tell my mom, you know, that I was free and to thank her for everything she had given me and and, and uh, say that final goodbye, have that final, uh, you know, conversation in your mind, your heart, and your soul. Uh, and, and, you know, and I was released. And my brother Michael, who, who has been a rock in my life for so long, uh, you know, he picked me up. Uh, uh, and we drove from the prison uh, cell straight to the graveyard. And it was so ironic because there was a mix-up in the actual paperwork for my release that delayed us uh, almost two hours past the time I was supposed to be released. Once that was established and stuff, and we had a tremendous, I had a tremendous amount of supporters and friends uh, people had struggled with me for, you know, decades of trying to uh, win my, my freedom uh, who were outside. And so between leaving the actual jail and, you know, driving away, you know, uh, you know, people were with signs and shouting. They were so, so happy that so many decades of hard work had, you know, accomplished what they wanted. And that was the freedom, the remaining group. Uh, a member that was the political group known as the Angola Three, and so we left and from the jail. And by the time we got to the graveyard, uh, or the grave was on site, the graveyard had closed down, you know. And like I, it was such a, uh, a tremendous blow, you know. And uh, so I actually got out the car. And I wanted to climb over the fence, you know. My brother, like, whoa, whoa, what you doing, you know? I'm like, I mean, I got to figure about a mama. He's like, come on, man, you know, we we work too hard. We don't want to give them a reason, mm. you know, to uh, put you back in jail or anything, you know. So we we let's go say that goodbye to Violetta, which is my sister, who is in another uh, cemetery, and mm. we'll come back tomorrow. And so that's what we did, you know. We went to my sister's uh, grave, and I was able to, you know, say goodbye to her. And uh, my brother-in-law, who was also a childhood friend, and uh, the next day, you know, we, my brother and I, uh, we, you know, we went bought up uh, almost a whole store of flowers and stuff, and we went back to my mom's grave, and I was able to have that moment of peace with her. Mm. And, you know, just say the things that were in my heart and my soul that I had carried for 20 years, you know. Mm. And uh, it's, it's ironic because uh, my brothers and I recently, uh, you know, those uh, sites he was devastated by Katrina, the whole group. Uh, and we just recently upgraded uh, the family plot there, you know, where we put in some work and 
redesigned. She got some new headstones and stuff like that, you know. So that was in 2016 uh, when you wanted to visit uh, your mother's grave after being released. Uh, but she died, I believe, in 1994. A year later, you would write yeah. a poem about your mother. It's titled Echoes. And for our listeners, uh, when you pick up this book, Solitary, by Albert Wood Fox, that poem to his mother is in the beginning pages of this uh, remarkable book. I wanted to bring into the conversation on Zoom, Brian Greenfield, who's the executive director of the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center. I also want to note uh, the Stowe Center is an underwriter on Connecticut Public Radio. Brian, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me today. Uh, so we've been hearing from Albert, and I know you've read this book. Tell us again why his book, Solitary, was awarded the Stowe Prize in 2020. Sure. Thank you, Albert, for writing this book and for sharing your story. Um, The Stowe Prize is is an award that we give to a contemporary author who's writing in the tradition of Harriet Beecher Stowe and Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, which is illuminating for us then a, a contemporary social issue. And Albert's book is the first book that we've ever had um, that was uh, a memoir um, that told of an individual's firsthand experience with an injustice. And his book, as you can see, is so incredibly powerful. Um, He shows us through his individual story the mechanism that racism persists in our society, whether that be um, poverty and lack of opportunity or all-white juries. Um, He also, though, really inspires us, too. Um, He comes out of this experience tremendously unbroken, and he inspires us and tells us that we need to look for the humanity in everyone, and that that uh, act um, brings us hope to transcend the racism that shapes our society. So, you know, a tremendously powerful book that we are so grateful to be able to feature. Mm. Albert, you mentioned earlier when you were in prison, you did a lot of reading. One of the books you read while incarcerated was Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. Uh, In the book, she describes this social and systemic pipeline that shunts many black men into incarceration and the expansion of the criminal justice system as the legacy of slavery in Jim Crow uh, today. Uh, You have been released now for several years. We are in a moment in our country where we're talking about systemic racism and uh, police brutality. I'm wondering if you can talk about your observations of this moment of the country that we're in. Well, one of the things, you know, uh, the Robert uh, Hillary King, you know, the other living member of Angola Tree, we we lost time in three days after winning his freedom. you know, it took me, I don't know, maybe because of the fact that I was in, in South Carolina for so long. Uh, you develop a very keen and sensitive sense of observation. And uh, so I, it took me about three, three weeks, maybe, uh, uh, of being, you know, uh, out of prison to realize that whatever change that had occurred in America was superficial, you know. The biggest change was technology and the application and use of technology. But underneath, you know, everything had become coded. But the racial attitude uh, was as as deep and the same as when I left society in in 69, you know. And and that was somewhat... uh, 
for shock, you know, because uh, when you're in solitary confinement, uh, we had one the right to have TVs and stuff. So uh, my window to society, uh, you know, was basically uh, newspapers, magazines, TV, uh, news programs, stuff like that. So you really didn't, I never really had a real sense of what it was to live in, in society until I was released from prison. Mm. And uh, as I said, it was a shock to me when, you know, I just come to the realization that nothing had changed in this country, not really, you know. And uh, and so, you know, I felt like, you know, my job was, was incomplete, you know, for the struggle for humanity, the struggle to build a, a, a society that, catered to the needs of its people. And uh, so, you know, that's one of the reasons I'm like, well, you you know, you have to continue to struggle. You have to continue to fight the things you believe in. Mm-hmm. I have uh, four beautiful good grandkids, you know, and 30 years from now, I don't want them fighting the same battles that we are fighting now in this country. You know? mm. Can you tell me... Uh what you think of the Black Lives Matter movement and the fact that it seems like so many more Americans at least have woken up to the systemic social and economic barriers that exist for black and brown Americans, Albert? Well, you know, Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, when, when I first became aware of, of Black Lives Matter movement uh, in this country, uh, I know the similarities between, you know, the, the goals and the ambitions of uh, Black Lives Matter movement and, and the Black Panther Party uh, uh, movement. And so I was very impressed by it. And Robert and I, you know, we've traveled across the United States and outside. Uh, you know, we've always, we always made a point to meet with some of the young numbers and Black Lives Matter uh, when possible, you know. And, uh, you know, it, it, you know, uh, while although, although the, the murder of young black men and other minorities and black women and even children in some cases by police uh, is, 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 is the thing people talk about the most, you know, but Black Lives Matter, that's not just what the movement is about. The movement is about you know, economic, uh, uh, it's political, it's social, it's cultural, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, I was very impressed, as I said, with it. We were very impressed with it, you know, and so we, we made it a point to meet with, uh, some of the young leaders, uh, and, you know, uh, uh teach and learn from them, uh, on, on why Black Lives Matter, uh, existed, you know. Mm. Brian Greenfield. I wanted to ask Brian uh, Greenfield when we think about again this memoir uh, that Albert wrote, uh, Solitary, and the lessons that he talks about in terms of caring for others and how he was able to be resilient despite spending nearly 45 years in solitary confinement uh, through the mission of the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center. How can this book be used uh, to further these conversations again about uh, systemic uh, issues in our country? Sure. You know, I think that the 
book, first of all, books are really powerful, right? Um, you know, as Albert himself is uh, a testament to that they have, the, especially history and literature has the opportunity to help us break down the barriers of our, from our individual experience and, and understand the complex um, systems that we live in from others' perspectives. Um, they are inspiring and they're revealing. And so the Harry Beecher Stowe Center in raising up a book like Albert Wood Fox's book really seeks to make those kinds of connections for people. And we do so starting with Harry Beecher Stowe's story. Um, she herself, uh, as, a, as a novelist, helped people see the world from a different perspective. Um, there's many ways that, the, that your audience can continue to explore and to get involved. Um, Albert's uh, first conversation uh, as our Stowe Prize winner is available on our website. He's in conversation with Roz Baraka, the 40th mayor of Newark, New Jersey, himself an educator and an activist and a poet. Um, October 4th, there will be a second interview live at 7 o'clock um, with Albert and with Roz. And there's a variety of other programs available as well. This summer, we built a solitary garden on the campus of the Stowe Center um, with a friend of Albert's, Jackie uh, Summel, an artist. And it's in the size and shape of a solitary confinement chamber. And as Albert said, that space is uh, important to visualize, right? Um, but it also, um, that garden didn't seek to simply show us the space, but to transform it. Um, because it is in the size and shape of a solitary confinement chamber, but it's filled with flowers. Flowers um, from Stowe's garden, flowers that she uh, identifies in Uncle Tom's cabin. Um, so the idea is to transform that space. Mm. And it's a very, very powerful thing. So we invite people to the Stowe Center to see that as well. If you want to hear more of Albert Wood Fox and conversation about uh, this book and uh, his experience, again, uh, you can learn more about that Stowe in Place conversation happening this weekend on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I want to thank Brian Greenfield, Executive Director of the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center, for joining us. And Albert Wood Fox, thank you for talking with us and congratulations on your 2020 Stowe Prize. Thank you so much. And I'm deeply honored to be a recipient of the Harry Beach Show Award, you know. Uh, I'm so happy because it just helps people read, you know, this book and along with other great books and uh, and move humanity forward. And then I have accomplished half of what I'm trying to do. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Up next, solitary confinement is also called restrictive housing in correctional facilities, and it's used in Connecticut prisons. We'll talk to the co-chair of the legislature's Judiciary Committee about a bill to ban the practice in our state. You can join us, too. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at where we live.
is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from Albert Wood Fox, who spent more than 40 years, nearly 45 years in solitary confinement for a crime he did not commit. The practice of isolating prisoners, both juveniles and adults, still continues in U.S. prisons. Connecticut banned solitary confinement for juveniles. There's an effort to do the same for adult prisoners. Joining us now on Zoom is State Senator Gary Winfield, who's co-chair of the Judiciary Committee in the Connecticut General Assembly. Senator Winfield, welcome back to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me back. Now, I mentioned that the the General Assembly banned this practice for juveniles in 2017, but it still happens for juveniles, some juveniles serving time in an adult prison. Tell us about this practice and why you're supporting a bill to ban it completely. Yeah, so in, in 2017, there was a, a bill. Uh, actually, the bill started off as a complete ban on solitary mm-hmm. confinement. What we wound up with was uh, House Bill 7302, uh, which had a ban on those who are under the age of 18. And, and as you know, and some of your listeners know, uh, the child advocate has brought to us that uh, the practice still happens. Part of that is uh, what was happening at the time in 2017 when the bill was put forward. Uh, there's this usage of language uh, where you talk about solitary confinement, restrictive housing, administrative seg- segregation, all of these different ways of doing uh, what the advocates are talking about. And if the language isn't particular to uh, the way the practice uh, happens, then uh, that's the loophole. Uh, currently, the uh, piece of legislation is being looked at for the next session uh, is the PROTECT Act, which is the Promoting Responsible Oversight and Treatment and Ensuring Correctional Transparency Act. Uh, and what it would look to do is uh, ban the usage of solitary confinement, prohibit Uh, isolated confinement of 16 hours or more. Um, And and there are some exceptions for that, obviously, including uh, facility-wide lockdowns and emergency responses. Uh, It would look to ban the usage of uh, restraints in some ways. Um, We have a conversation ongoing in the state about uh, the usage of telephone uh, and whether or not uh, our citizens who are incarcerated can have access to telephones. It deals with that in this bill as well along with a certain number of letters to make sure that those social bonds uh, are maintained. And it also thinks about uh, the officers who are in the space uh, and the promotion of wellness. We did a little bit of that in the 2017 bill. Uh, And then it wants to create an office of a corrections ombudsman uh, who would also have the power to investigate and make recommendations. Uh, And uh, finally, uh, one of the things that has been talked about um, a lot uh, is a uh, Northern Correctional Institution and whether or not it should function. And uh, at least as the outset of the bill, this would look to close it now. And obviously uh, in the bill that was coming this year, uh, they were hoping to get that done this year, but we'll see how that works in the, the coming session. Mm. You mentioned Northern, that's the Supermax uh, prison, I believe. And so oh. this would be if and when solitary confinement is used by correction staff, it happens within this prison, Senator Winfield? Yes, but there are other ways of uh, isolating people that, that does not happen in Northern. But Northern is mm-hmm. is uh, the target, if you will. It's, it's um, design in and of itself was to uh, have a psychological effect on, on individuals. And I remember, I think it was 2009 or 2010, I took a tour of Northern. And one of the things that uh, was pointed out to me as we walked in was that it was designed to make you feel as though the walls closed in on you and that things got darker as you went in and the reverse happened as you went out. 
Uh, and that was looked at as uh, a marvel of design to me. It was, uh, it was looked at as a problem. Uh, I, I feel as though uh, I recognize that some people believe that you have to punish people, but I don't think that is what we mean to do. And I think that's also part of uh, the underlying issue here with solitary confinement, the effects it has on people that we don't always think about. Mm. Uh, I should mention to our listeners that the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture weighed in on Connecticut's Department of Corrections practices earlier this year. And uh, he said that Connecticut's use of solitary confinement could constitute torture. Uh, We reached out to the Department of Correction for a statement. And in that statement, the DOC says the state does not use this practice at the rate seen in other states and, quote, when warranted and after a due process hearing, this placement is temporary with the goal to return to to the general population. What's your reaction to that statement, Senator Winfield? You know, I think we focus too much on what other other states do. I think we need to be focused on uh, what the best practice here in Connecticut should be. Uh, and, and when you think about psychological effects of uh, so isolating people, let's just talk about what it is to be socially isolated outside of a prison. Uh, when you're socially iso- isolated outside of a prison, it has effects on the brain. Now those, brain, those effects can be reversed because you can have social interaction. But in a prison, there's studies that show that uh, and of course, these studies are done on mice, but within a month, 20% of neurons have decreased. Mm. Um, and it affects the hippocampus, which is a section of the brain that affects learning, memory, and, and spatial awareness. So uh, I, it, I think we should be thinking about whether or not we should use that practice at all. Mm. And how, if we need to use it, and we need to define why we need to use it, but how, if we need to use it, we can limit it to the most extreme circumstances. And and that's what we should be focused on. The fact that we're better than other people who don't do a good job doesn't mean that we're doing a good job ourselves. Mm. I wanted to read a quote from Judith Resnick, uh, who spoke to WMPR in 2019 about solitary confinement. She's the Arthur Lyman professor at Yale University School of Law. She said her concern is that solitary confinement is actually the source of more violence and more disruption. Senator Winfield, can you unpack that a little more about not only the impact on on prisoners who are put in solitary confinement, but the, the correction staff that also has to um, oversee this practice and how you know it's not good for either party? I think anytime that you take human beings and you put them into a place where you deprive them of their liberties, you're going to have issues. And, and the interaction between uh, those who guard uh, the, the citizens who are incarcerated and those citizens is, is, a, is a space of contention. Uh, it's a space of us doing things that we're not naturally uh, given to doing, and it causes issues for both sides. And I also think, particularly on the issue of solitary confinement, uh, I think it increases uh, th- those things because when you put someone in solitary confinement, you increase their anxiety, their depression, their suicidal thoughts. You have physical health impacts on them. And so, yes, in the prison there are issues, but let's also remember that those people, at, at many of them, most of them are going to return to society. And they return to society with those things having happened to them. And so, who are we returning to society is also a question. There's, there's very little, if anything, done to remediate those things inside of our prison system. Mm. So as far as this proposal, Senator Winfield, uh, it could have been addressed this past legislative session, but got 
cut short because of the pandemic. We know there's a special session starting up today, I believe. So do you anticipate this proposal uh, will be brought up in January during the the general session? And what do you think your colleagues uh, in terms of supporting this type of measure? Well, that's the work to be done to get the the support. But I will say that uh, the bill will come up in the, the, the January session that of course means that of course is relying upon the fact that I assume we are having a normal or relatively normal session. Uh, but given that happening, yes, this proposal will be on the table uh, because I will make I will put it on the table. Um, so there will be an effort around that. Uh, the advocates are aware of that, and, and they're beginning their work uh, to engage with legislators at this moment. Mm. Uh, just uh, another minute left, uh, Senator Winfield. You've been having conversations about this bill with uh, Commissioner Kiros. Uh, so I haven't had this okay. conversation with uh, Commissioner Kiros. I did have it with his predecessor, but I haven't yet since he's come on had this conversation yet with the commissioner. Mm. But you anticipate uh, hoping to do so? I anticipate we'll have a lot of conversations <laughs> about this bill. Well, Senator Winfield, we appreciate you coming to tell us about uh, these efforts here in our state, again, to ban all solitary confinement in the state of Connecticut. Senator Winfield, again, is co-chair of the General Assembly's Judiciary Committee. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me again. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. I just wanted to mention that uh, Where We Live is looking for Connecticut musicians to help craft a new theme song for the show. You can learn more about that at wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Thanks for listening.